Hey guys, before getting into the show, I've got something for learning anatomy. Let's be honest, it's painful learning it. Learning what nerve goes through what and where what muscle attaches to, it can sometimes take forever to learn. So let's talk KenHub. Number one, they've got thousands of anatomy illustrations and articles. Number two, they've got videos by genuine anatomy experts with speed controls, captions and transcripts giving you complete control to jump and focus where you want. Basically, you get control over what you want to learn and in the way you want. And finally, three, quizzes. The best way to test yourself and help retention of knowledge. But wait, it doesn't end there because you can create your own quizzes to match your goals. KenHub haven't left any stone unturned. There's a 10% discount code linked in the description below. Check them out. Now let's head back to the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Scrubbing Show. I hope you've all been keeping well. This week, we have with us another incredible guest. We have with us Dr. Phil McConney, who is the CEO and founder of Medal, and he has an incredible vision, which is to make accessible training for healthcare professionals anywhere in the world. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. How are you? Yeah, thanks, Abdul. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, pleasure to uh, join uh, join you both. And uh, yeah, looking forward to the conversation. So we know you've done so many incredible things today, but we want to take it to the very beginning of your journey, Phil. Tell us a bit more about your motivation when you decided that you wanted to become a doctor and you wanted to go to medical school. Uh, my, my parents remind me that when I was uh, at primary school, I wanted to be an ice cream man and uh, not a doctor. Um, but um, I relatively swiftly um, uh, pivoted and that's been a bit of a bit of a a journey of pivoting since then but um i uh yeah i mean i i, I had a couple of family members who were doctors i came from uh um you know a, a, a relatively privileged position in, in that in that kind of sense so i'd kind of seen what being a doctor was and was about and and they were really good examples of doctors as well and people who i really respected and and looked up to um and have gone on to do some incredible uh, things in, in healthcare as well so I was in, I was really fortunate I'm very conscious of that um from kind of day day one um um but what it did did show me was the impact that you could make as a as a healthcare professional as well and the gravity and and um importance of that kind of role and the impact you could make on people's lives and that for me as a young Phil was really inspiring um and um and I was really um fortunate to then study it at the University of Glasgow and, and had a great a great time at uh, Glasgow as a as a medical student um and um throughout that kind of that kind of journey got uh super interested in kind of cardiac surgery really enjoyed um uh really enjoyed a special study module that I did in cardiac surgery at, at medical school and I remember just being blown away by the impact mm-hmm. that um that those um uh professionals could make in that in that space you know that uh, you see a patient coming in breathless in clinic and uh do this like truly magical operation and you see them six to eight weeks after the operation in clinic again and they're like a new person and for me this was just high impact um captivating specialty and so i i really uh, began to kind of pivot my career towards that um that that special I probably entered medical school wanting to do something like tropical diseases or um uh public health or something like that um uh other end of the spectrum and, and but I was right other end of the spectrum right but I was truly blown away by that specialty and and um fairly early on in in my journey at medical school kind of second or third year at uh, medical school I did that and 
And I, I remember, I remember the moment, right? I remember the moment in an operation, kind of seeing a beating heart for the first time, and just like genuinely breathtaking. But much more importantly, seeing that patient six to eight weeks afterwards, and just seeing this new person was just kind of wow. Look at the, look at the impact you can make on 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 a life. Uh, truly incredible and, and kind of fortunate position to be in. No, that sounds incredible. And the question I want to ask off the back of that is: you were exposed to cardiothoracic surgery as a medical student. But did it live up to your expectations when you did finally graduate? Because we know a lot of the times the stuff we see and perceive in medical school is actually very different to what it is like after we graduate. So I'm keen to hear how it was for you after graduating. Um, it is a tough specialty to 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 work in for sure. It's, uh, to say, I think you would be naive to say this is a really easy specialty to work in. It's hard to get into cardiac surgery yeah. as a trainee, right? But to even get in there is is a tough it's a tough gig, right? Um, uh, and once you're there, it's hard work. It's hard work. Um, and I think anyone who tries to glamorize that and say, you know what, this is a walk in the park is is uh, is maybe not telling you the full story. Um, um, why? So there's some of the longest operations you can do. There's some of the highest impact operations, the highest risk operations. All of those things come with responsibility. And, and quite rightly, there's really dedicated people in that specialty who are working really hard to um to make sure that their patients get the best best possible care um i was in this kind of interesting scenario where i was uh so i was an academic uh registrar in cardiac surgery and um uh, i'd been really fortunate to kind of get a run-through number and and yeah. um uh, uh and uh and was relatively secure in in that kind of space um and so i split my time between uh, operating and clinical practice and the university and research and education and for me the um the the bit of my brain that was getting really excited um was was probably in the research and education bit um not because i didn't like operating i really loved kind of moving my hands i really love patients but i just find my brain kind of constantly wanting to go back to like big picture stuff like how do you impact more than just the single patient in front of you and um, and you absolutely have to focus at all times in cardiac surgery, surgery on the single patient in front of you. You can't be thinking about kind of 10, 20, 50 patients or a system, right? You've got to, like, you absolutely want yeah. your research and focus on your very single yeah. patient in front of you. You don't want to, like, have that person yeah. thinking about drifting off into it. Um, and, um, but what I find was that actually the stuff that was really activating my brain was big picture stuff. But that, um, uh, um, you know, that was only part of my, my time. And I was kind of then thinking about what, what comes next, you know, what, what are the next 20, 30 years of my career look like? And it's really interesting that my initial kind of career aspirations when I was going into medical school were kind of that big picture, humanitarian, impactful stuff. I really wanted to think about public health or tropical medicine. And, um, and I find in that kind of academic rule that it was the education research bit that like softer, but bigger picture um piece that was really getting me out of bed in the morning and and um uh, and and so for me I had, I had to start to make some really difficult decisions you know I had to start to think about okay well um does that mean that I like just do that or do I uh wait another five eight ten years depending on doing a PhD or not to then be able to do that at some point right or do I just say this is so exciting for me and and really gets me motivated that i just do this now and and start to start to think about bigger picture research education 
um, stuff. And, um, and so I, I actually made some really difficult decisions fairly early on in my cardiac surgery career to say, um, I probably want to focus on the education and research, bigger picture, system-wide uh, stuff. And um, in that kind of journey, I'd, I'd started to notice things about education that were really frustrating for healthcare professionals or the people who were delivering teaching and training, right? Um, I find that a lot of the admin for it landed on the busy healthcare professional. Uh, I, at the time, sat on the Association for Surgeons and Training Executive and um, uh, organizing teaching and training and courses um, was often landed on busy clinicians. Um, they were just doing so much, right? Such amazing stuff was happening in that organization that um, that it just needed a team of kind of 10, 11, 12, 15, 20 people running it, the very nature of it. Um, but often I was landing on busy clinicians um, as well. And um, the same with um, a kind of day-to-day teaching, right? Collecting feedback and um, uh, recording who's attending. And like it's all landed on the busy clinician at the end of the day. Um, and actually what we really need is as a healthcare um, uh, society, as a society of, of healthcare professionals, what we need is um, the ability to just focus on delivering more teaching and training, not on all of the other stuff. Why? Well, like we're in this like uh, really interesting scenario where we need to train like millions more healthcare professionals around the world. And 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 that was a problem that I started diving into relatively um, uh, uh, relatively um, early on in my career, beginning to get interested in the um, the way in which um, uh, healthcare professionals were trained and reading about how the World Health Organization was describing healthcare training in the 21st century, reading about the Lancet's 21st century report on uh, medical education, beginning to understand where are the big problems, right? That was the stuff that, what's the big problem here? And when you look at that, you look at some of the big problems in healthcare education, we need to train a third more healthcare professionals on planet Earth by 2030. Wow. That's a ticking time bomb. And we're now 2023. We've got, so we've got seven years to train 18 million more healthcare professionals. That's a third more healthcare professionals than we currently have. And then you look at some of the stuff that Lancet's saying about healthcare education, they're saying we don't have enough resources, but quote unquote, there's grave deficiencies in our healthcare training capacity currently. So we don't have enough resources to train the doctors we already have, never mind scaling up by one third in the next seven years. And my goodness, if you're going to pick a big problem, there's one to start with. Yeah, no, I, I you know, ain't going to do it by getting all the healthcare professionals. I don't think we realize how big of a problem this is, not until you kind of put it on paper. And when you're saying we need 18 million more healthcare professionals, you're thinking, my word, that is a big number. How on earth do we do it? And we've only got about 60 million on planet Earth at the moment. So it's not as if it's a small fraction. It's like a massive proportion, proportionately a huge, uh, you know, a huge number for sure. When you start to look at like how that's happening at the moment, it's really interesting, right? So, um, uh, so we're saying we need to do, we need to do this massive thing by 2030. But then you look at high healthcare education currently happens in organizations and it is busy healthcare professionals who are doing up often beyond their day job. And uh, particularly interesting when COVID came along as well, because everything went digital, right? And then it just added a whole new layer of bureaucracy on top of things. So typically what we were seeing was people who were signing up for teaching sessions, just going through like seven or eight tools just to get there. So they were signing up on a Google form, right? So people were signing up on a Google form. The healthcare professional running the course was then bouncing people to a Zoom call they only had a limit of 100 people on the Zoom calls. So they were then specifically checking that people had NHS email addresses or not, and then manually only sending the Zoom link to those like people who had NHS email addresses. 
Then on the Zoom call, they were pinging in a Google form link to collect feedback. And then from that, some organizations were copying and pasting names from the Google sheet that was produced as a result of the Google form, copying and pasting that, pasting it into a Microsoft Word document template for a certificate, manually making certificates, emailing them out to the 100 people who attended, downloading the video from Zoom because he only had a gigabyte of storage, then adding it to YouTube or Vimeo, and then putting in the same Google form link again to collect feedback on demand. Like, what on earth are we doing? Uh, you know, we've got 18 million more healthcare professionals to train. Uh, there's there's no way we're going to do it like that. I feel breathless that my patient you thought I met. Me too. The hair would have So that, so that, that, in some ways, that was kind of the birthplace for what we're doing at, at Mel, right? Is is beginning to solve some of those um, fundamental problems for organizations who are running teaching and training, so that they can just focus on delivering more teaching and training, training more people, not having to worry about all the faff that goes with it. I think what you guys are doing is incredible and we'll come talk about it later. But before that, I want to ask you a bit more about kind of cardiothoracic surgery, being able to secure yourself a super competitive post, kind of being secure. What kind of made you commit to that decision, kind of go into GSK, a whole different career? What was kind of the rationale? What were you thinking um, at the time? It's really hard, right? To anyone who tells you that's a quick, easy decision to make, isn't telling you the truth. Uh, I think it gives you sleepless nights. I think it um, makes you question who you are. So as medics, I think a lot of our identity, right or wrong, is tied up in what we do. Um, and that, you know, it's sometimes the nature of this type of profession where sometimes it's seen as a vocation. Whether you think that's right or not, sometimes it's seen as a vocation. Sometimes a lot of our identity gets wrapped up in what we do. And for me, that was certainly the case. I had I had, you know, a lot of my identity was what I did for a living, what I did for a job. And um, I, in some ways, when I was thinking about stepping away from cardiac surgery, had a bit of an existential crisis, you know, like, who am I? Um, what, uh, when people ask me, what do I do? Who, what do I say? Um, what, what is it I do? Um, where am I going? It, like you, and, and I think that because we're so used to a, almost a conveyor belt type career in medicine, stepping off that is a really scary thing to do because you're used to having guide rails constantly to kind of where you're going. And it's a one-way street in some ways. Um, so stepping off that can feel like you're stopping or you're stalling. And it's only in retrospect that I actually realized this is actually opening my opportunities. And it's kind of in some ways broadening the stuff that you can get involved in. And, um, and I saw it as one of the, uh, like most freeing and exciting things that I could do. Um, and, it, but it was scary at the time for sure. And, and I had some, um, I had some great support from my educational supervisor at the time. He was a wonderful, um, professor of cardiac surgery. Um, I had, uh, other wise trainees who'd done something similar and I didn't completely throw the tile at something to start with so you're right so what I did was I actually segued out to GSK to start with and that big picture stuff the how do you make an impact was really interesting so uh, uh, GSK were uh, working in in disease areas that were kind of um, uh, related to uh, cardiac surgery and, and structural heart disease and so on and uh, I jumped from my academic role in cardiac surgery into uh, GSK as a medical director for rare diseases and that was a really great time because it allowed me to kind of take stock. You know, you're still like, you're not completely out on your own as an entrepreneur or you're not completely out on your own as, um, you know, at something outside of a 
well-trodden career path. You're still in a well-trodden career path, but kind of taking a step back and taking a, a breath. Um, and uh, I was I was really fortunate at the time to get that approved as an out-of-program. Um, so I could step back in again to cardiac surgery if I'd wanted to, um, which really gave me the reins of, the, you know, what, what I wasn't completely stepping away from something that I dedicated a lot of my um, life, really, to to gear towards. I worked really hard to try to get into to cardiac surgery. There was only one academic job in the country at the time. Um, so I worked super hard to get in there. So to, to walk away, I was I was in a really fortunate position, really well supported by um, by wonderful colleagues in, in that specialty to, to help me start to make some of those decisions. Um, and I was really, really interested in some of the stuff that um, that GSK were doing. I actually thought it would be really helpful towards an academic career as well. Um, and, and I think it's actually a really valuable thing for healthcare professionals to see. I think sometimes we can look at pharmaceutical companies as like big, bad pharmaceutical companies and we should stay away from them and never talk to them, right? That's that's what's beaten into from day one of medical school. But actually, I was really interested in pharma to see the humanity of the people who are working there and how deeply they care about what they're working on, right? Like they're human like you and me. Like they are human like you and me. And it's a company made, oh, yeah, I know they're for profit and they've got lots of things that um, uh, that are not perfect, right? But ultimately the people in there are good people and they care about what they're doing. And you can see that, the, for instance, really interesting, you know, at, at that time, a competitor had just um, released the results of a clinical trial for a drug that um, was treating the same disease as what we were working on. And there was no, like, this is like an orphan disease. There were no treatments in uh, this area. And we were gunning to be the first uh, licensed therapy in this space um, in the US and in, in Europe and a competitor got in there before us. And the, you would expect if this was a for-profit cold company, people to be like totally, um, um, you know, down, downtrodden about that and, and, and so on. But actually you could see like people were really happy that there, there was an option for patients in this space because they cared deeply about the patients at the end of it. And these are healthcare professionals as well. So it was a, it was a really interesting kind of journey to take. And I also saw some of the problems across healthcare education in that space as well. So I could see that in uh, in countries around the world where we were delivering education in that rare disease, that they were facing exactly the same problems that we were facing. Their education wasn't scalable. Uh, getting information into doctors' hands was difficult, and often the admin and bureaucracy landed on the busy healthcare professional. So this it was a really good opportunity because it showed me that same healthcare system from a multi-country perspective. You could kind of see it across Europe and US and so on. So it was it was a really interesting kind of formative time for me as well. That's amazing. And just diving into your journey a bit more. So the process of going from cardiothoracic surgery into this role at GSK, and I know a lot of our listeners are clinicians, non-clinicians, and like you've already mentioned, it's kind of these guide rails telling you what to do next from ST1, ST2, 3 and so on. What's the process like for these roles outside of the clinical world? How do you even find a job? What's the process like um, and how was that process? I think it was probably easier then than it is now in, in honesty. Um, it wasn't as popular a route in 2014 um, compared to what it is now, right? Um, it, it, it's uh, a sought after route in some ways. and But GSK advertised for clinicians who are interested in um uh, joining uh, the company and and they actively recruit for uh, academics and people who are in academic training jobs and and so on. Um, and so they they actively kind of recruit for those 
uh, for those people. I think the best thing you can do probably do is talk to people. Um, go and talk to people who are already doing that job. And most people, like most people, are happy to share experiences from their careers and and so on. Go and talk to them. Find out exactly what it is they do. I think for us as well as healthcare professionals, it can be a bit opaque. What is what does a medical affairs director do in GSK? You ask a standard clinician on the ground, what what is that rule? And they won't be able to tell you, mostly, most likely. Um, so I think the first step to do is to go and talk to, to people who are in those rules and figure out what it is they do or read about it, um, understand it, and then and begin to look at the kind of job, job specs or types of job that you want to do. Uh, and then you can openly apply. There's lots of there's lots of them advertised um, across LinkedIn, across the internet, um, on pharma companies' websites. And there's lots of lots of scope to 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 find them for sure. So you quit cardiothoracic training. You kind of do this out of training program approach. You're at GSK. So we want to hear a bit more about the medal story. When does that enter the picture? What is the origin of that story? Yeah, um, so I think what that time, that kind of out of program for me did was it showed me that it confirmed for me that, yeah, what I want to do with the rest of my career is big picture stuff. I want to do the stuff that makes an impact that is beyond just one-to-one patient interaction. And I love patients, right? I love talking to patients. I'm a people's person. I enjoy people. I like chatting. I like empathizing. I like treating people. I like seeing the impact on people. But I also like seeing kind of broad system-wide impact. And that's the kind of the big problem thing is the the thing that gets my brain going. I think that's what GSK um, kind of confirmed for me is I can do this for the rest of my uh, career. I, I, I can work on a system and I can work on a, a, a systematic problem. For that. So I think that, ta- that, that was a really formative time. It allowed me to space and time to understand that. And I think that is, is really good. Take that time to actually figure out what makes your brain tick and and move forward um it also showed me some of those gaps right it showed me some of the gaps with um education and my role was was in some ways an educational type role at gsk was helping to rule out rare disease education across um uh, countries in in europe and and us and um what what it showed for me was yet as as we've kind of discussed is that there's there's a big problem in education across multiple countries and so that was that was a big kind of thing in my head that okay well like that's a big problem you know started to read more about the who more about lancet starting to understand some of those big issues and and for me that was a meaty problem to solve how can we do this what can we do that really changes the game in this space and so i actually stepped back from both cardiothoracic surgery and gsk and said i want to i want to do this i want to um, spend my life trying to solve that big problem. For me, that's a, you know, it cool. I know there's lots of faults with the pharmaceutical industry. I, um, um, I know there's, um, uh, lots of problems that, um, that it faces for me, it was a, a really good formative time to help me make that decision about, yeah, I want to, to solve this big problem. So I stepped back to, uh, to find metal really to try to, uh, 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 make an impact on that kind of scaling up of education around the world. How do we make healthcare training more accessible? And since then, it's just been like pulling a thread in my head of beginning to really get down into this, falling in love with that problem and figuring out what are the things that like really make this uh, solvable and what are the pains that people face. And and the more you look at that, the the 
uh, the more you kind of see and the more, more you see the opportunity to really solve this problem. And COVID was a real kind of accelerant for that. So uh, as we kind of talked about, the process of setting up teaching and training was becoming increasingly bureaucratic rather than getting better. It was getting worse, right? Um, so we're like, okay, well, we could automate that end to end, that registration right through to on-demand content. We can automate that, right? Let just give that time back to the healthcare professionals. Let's not get them like doing all the clunky stuff. Um, just to automate it, like registration, live event. Do you know, and actually in live event, why are we limiting it to 100 people, right? This is like scalable technology. So why are we worrying about limiting our teaching and training to 100 people? We've got millions more to train. Like we need to welcome thousands, tens of thousands to people to these teaching sessions, not kind of saying only if you're in the exclusive group where I know you, you live in the right place, you have enough money, whatever it is that uh, that you can join this teaching session. So we lifted the lid on that. So we worked really hard to increase the capacity on uh, teaching sessions on metal to 10,000. So you can welcome 10,000 people to um, a metal teaching session. Train the world, go for it. Um, uh, if you're willing to do it, we're, we're right behind you. Um, we, we automated the feedback forms, automated the certificates, automated the on-demand content. Just give that back to healthcare professionals. Uh, and the real place that we kind of um, uh, started, you know, it was was very different to that. So we, we started with assessments at metal. We thought that actually the way to scale up the amount of healthcare training that we provide as planet earth was to assess people more and we realized that that's wrong um you know uh, what's the point in assessing people if they can't access education to be assessed upon it's crazy so um so we we moved from that into uh, actually running the actual teaching and training but one of the accelerants for that was covid and and um for me in march 2020 i just watched every single medical conference being cancelled it was yeah. it was like the most painful thing to see, right? And um, you know, this if there's a time that we need to be sharing research, like surely a global pandemic is the time when we need to be sharing like our most valuable information. <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't watch that happen, right? So we actually started in um, in March 2020 when we saw that happen. We advertised um, a virtual medical conference. I had no idea how we were going to run it. Absolutely <laughs> no idea uh, because we didn't have all the tech in house, right? Uh, I had absolutely zero idea how we were going to do this, but I just knew that we have to do this. Like this is a time when we just need to step up and do it. And we've got some tech skills in house. And so we ran in spring 2020, what was termed um, by Shafi Ahmed, uh, the world's kind of first virtual medical conference. And from there, we've just kind of um, grown and, and iterated. And then we've powered something like 6,000 healthcare courses, conferences, events, hybrid and virtual um, on metal end to end We've provided the technology to 1,700 healthcare organizations in 25 countries, and they've collectively taught colleagues in 172 countries. And for us, that's like, that's incredible, right? That's the mission we're on is to, how do we make healthcare training more accessible? And we saw that in COVID. We saw the opportunity for this sort of technology to break down barriers. So where we may have been running a national conference for a UK audience previously, we saw people from Somalia coming. We saw people from Bangladesh coming. We saw people from Uganda coming. We saw uh, people from Belgium coming. We saw people from uh, Mexico coming. We saw people from Canada coming. And suddenly what was a UK meeting was available to the world. And uh, we we suddenly made it accessible for people who would never be able to afford a flight to or a hotel or whatever to travel to a UK conference, suddenly be able to attend. And for, for us, that was like, this is the mission we are on. How do we make this? How do we make teaching and training more accessible? And technology like this has the power to do it. Um, and we've tried to stay true to that um, uh, and since then. Um, but, but certainly COVID was an accelerant and we, we had the pivot along the way for sure. 
yeah, sharing those numbers is incredible. And I think the difficulty was, especially during COVID, many organizations struggled to kind of keep up with the training. And it was particularly difficult for medical students that were struggling to go into hospitals, continue with the clinical payments. And obviously there was a valid reason for it. And I think that's when we found Medal kind of stepped up. It allowed, you know, to continue this training. And the beauty about it was that it wasn't just based for medical students in the UK. It was the fact that many healthcare professionals and students from across the world were able to benefit from it. Um, And many of these people may not have even been exposed to this or had access to this level of training. Thanks, Abdul. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really interesting that, and, and especially, I mean, imagine being in that position perpetually, right? So imagine, I mean, you've hit the nail on the head. You've talked about how in the pandemic, our medical students weren't able to attend teaching and training and how that was a massive problem. But imagine as a country being in that situation perpetually, imagine as a country, we do not have any medical training or you certainly don't have enough. And you can see actually how this is an ongoing international emergency in some ways, right? So we've got, I mean, there's 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 um, seven countries on the continent of Africa, sorry, 11 countries on the continent of Africa, which don't have a single medical school for the entire population. There's over 20 that only have one medical school for the entire population. So uh, like th- those medical students who didn't have access for a short period of time, that was awful, right? But imagine being in that position perpetually And for us, that's intolerable. As a community, right? As a community of healthcare professionals, we care. We deeply care about our patients. And in some ways, we're a global community, right? You go to international meetings and you care about what's happening in other parts of the world. And for us, that was like, we have to care. Like, we have to care about helping people in uh, situations where they don't have access to ongoing education constantly, like, like people in necessarily high-income countries but also then within high-income countries you look at some of the disparities and and um there's an awesome quote that i kind of share when i'm i'm uh talking about our mission and it's from a wonderful person called maria prale who heads up events for the widening participation medics network and she um talks about how um uh, the cost of surgical courses can easily make surgical training something like a tick box exercise for the wealthy. Mm. If you've got enough money, you can do all the courses that get you the most competitive job or, uh, the, uh, uh, you know, the, the job in the city that, that you want to live in. And, and why, why, why should that be how we prioritize our doctors? Why should that be how we prioritize our care? Surely we want the best doctors in the right place at the right time, not the wealthiest or the people who come from the best backgrounds and it's why i caveat i i I don't come from a um a low-income background and and i'm very very honest about that and 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 so it yeah it's it's um this is not coming from me personally but it's like talking about talking about these issues is really important um yeah it's not just a problem that's confined to somewhere else especially when you look at the cost of training in the uk right so um the association for surgeons in training actually did um a really awesome paper um in 2017 which looks at the cost of surgical training to the individual surgical trainee and it's about twenty four thousand pounds on average of a trainee's own money being spent on their own surgical training across the course of career up to seventy two thousand pounds if you're in max max training 1300 pounds of that every single year is spent on courses conferences tickets and hotels and 41 or 42 and i can't remember the exact number percent of those people uh don't get any recourse from their study budget at all and if they do it's only like 500 quid of that 
and, and and you can see how this becomes like a it becomes you know a problem in high income countries as well um so so there's there's a there's a problem to solve here in high income countries low income countries middle income countries and it's solved by the healthcare community the wonderful healthcare community that we've seen over the last couple of years welcoming people to teaching and training like we've been doing and making teaching and training more accessible and sharing our resources and pooling our experience and um, collectively kind of pushing forward. That's how we begin to solve this problem. And, and by the way, I don't think that's us solving this problem. So I think our position at Metal is about enablement and empowerment. And if we can get that right to simply enable and empower, it's actually the medical community that's solving this problem itself. That's absolutely amazing. And I think you're well on your way to achieving that feel. We definitely know there's an emergency and the need, like you described, for high quality healthcare professionals and doctors from around the world. I just want to reflect um, and spend a bit of a moment at the beginning stages. I know you've got incredible numbers, you've got a thriving community, but tell us a bit more about the early few days. You know, how does a cardiothoracic surgeon who then moves into GSK as a global medical affairs director then set up a company? What were the first few days like as an entrepreneur? First few days. Uh, oh my goodness. Um, first few days and total transparency, total and utter chaos, right? Um, uh, like, where do you start? Like, we're not trained as, as, business people right we're not trained as uh tech people uh we're not there's so much gaps in uh, ask me to 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 run an als scenario i'm very happy right um uh so, so you know, so much to learn right but i think you can get there quicker by um uh with with the support of people right and i think that is a core component of our success is uh, the support of wonderful people in the tech community, in the healthcare community, uh, in the startup community, is uh, is is awesome. I remember kind of, uh, uh, you know, the, the the first time you realize that your your co-founder is the the right person for you. So um, I, I'm really blessed by having a uh, a wonderful co-founder who um, uh, is kind of 25 years of software development experience is uh, kind of super. Uh, super awesome, uh, and uh, and realizing what an asset that is is uh, is is really important. And um, same with kind of support from the business and tech community. So I sat with um, with uh, the CEO of Nextdoor, which is kind of one of the biggest social networks in the US, kind of uh, top top four or five in in the US. Um, uh, who and she was also Jack Dorsey's previous CFO. Uh, when she was at Square, a wonderful person called Sarah Fryer. She's on the board of Slack. She's on the board of Walmart. She's CEO of Nextdoor, was Jack Dorsey CFO. And I remember talking to her about some of the big problems, right? In the same way, I've just kind of talked to you and 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 she was really generous. She said, I, I totally believe in this. Like, we have to solve these problems. And uh, she said, what can I do? And I kind of went into that conversation knowing exactly what I'd love her help with, which was trying to connect me with the resources that we needed to to get us off the ground, right? And she was really generous and she opened her address book and she started to connect me with people. But not only that, but she backed us herself as well. And she said, I absolutely believe in the mission that you're on. And and I you know I want to back this as well. Um and she's she's kind of openly written about about that in uh, the public domain as well. She's actually got an amazing kind of quote about metal, not just to blow her own trumpet, but actually talks about enablement and empowerment in it. She talks about how the metal community has enabled and empowered the healthcare community 
deliver medical education at a scale never before imaginable. And and so so we're aligned on that as a as a team. We're aligned. Our position is to enable and empower. But we couldn't have got there without the help of wonderful team. Right, a wonderful yeah. team beside me who are really skilled and talented, and we love them. We value them. We think they're awesome. Uh, the tech community and the business community actually began to back healthcare companies during COVID was a magical thing. Right, healthcare was seen as like the most difficult bastion of tech, and we don't want to get involved because they're all really difficult. Was kind of the perception of, of healthcare right but sudden and, and i'm very happy to invest in like dating apps and the delivery <laughs> apps and stuff but during covid actually suddenly healthcare became the most important thing and everyone realized that including the kind of tech community and and equally within the health the healthcare community we saw a real rapid adoption of technology as well so there's there's probably a combination of those things that really helped in those early days of um uh, you know, we've got the tech community backing us and willing to support healthcare, healthcare ready to move on technology and a wonderful team. Um, and out of all of those things, it's team. It's like people, um, everything comes back to people. You know, what we do is serve people at Metal. Uh, we serve a community uh, and um, and the only way we do that is with a wonderful team who are, who are talented. No, definitely. And you've talked about the importance of people and having a good team around you. How do you, as the CEO of Medal become a good leader, solving a big problem that we know isn't solved overnight. How do you keep going? What motivates you? We know in the world of startups and tech, it isn't all kind of roses and sunshine. There are difficult days. How do you do it? I wouldn't claim to have that perfectly solved, right? Um, but um, what I what I have learned is that uh, you have to find, yeah, number like really cliche, but find people who are better than you at everything. Um, and then secondly, get out of their way. Um, <laughs> so find people who are, who are better than you and then let them do their job, right? Um, because the, the reason you've you've brought them on is because they're better than you. So um, I think you can set direction and I think you can set vision as, as a leader. Um, don't try to execute on things that you've got better people who can execute on um, compared to you. Um, but also... Um, kind of don't be afraid to be honest. And as a team, we've got kind of two really core values, which are be honest and be kind. Um, people are people and value people as people. Um, and in everything you, sh you should be, that doesn't mean you have to just be nice all the time, but you have to be kind and um, uh, and and in kind of parallel with that, be honest. So, um, and if you are kind, you can be honest. And I think that honesty and talking about the problems is really important, right? So startups are hard. There's lots of problems to solve. Um, and uh, I think the only way you can start to solve them is talking about them. So uh, we've tried to tried to maintain honesty and kindness as kind of two really core values for us. But yeah, um, people, like finding people who are better than you is is like constant, um, um, a kind of constant way to improve the team and constant way to kind of press forward. No, certainly. The question I had in mind was while you're trying to solve this problem of making healthcare training accessible to people around the world and you're primarily doing it in a virtual way, individuals that are perhaps from a low income country, you know, watching online webinars, learning on virtual platforms, do you think it's good enough when we know as practicing clinicians, it's very practical in a day to day job? How do you fill that gap or is it something that Meadow will be going into uh, within in the future? Uh, really good question. Is it enough? No, absolutely not. 
Um, is it a start? Yes. Um, and I think I think that's we've got to start somewhere, right? We've got to start in somewhere in terms of increasing accessibility and and virtual's great at passing on knowledge. Yeah, and it's great at passing on knowledge. And if you'd asked me, kind of two three years ago, could you teach skills online? I'd have laughed you out of the room. And uh, you know, as someone who's passionate about surgery, about moving my hands, we have this perception that you've got to yeah, everything's got to be face to face in that scenario. But there's a really interesting paper from um, from Matthias Furavari, uh, one of the authors is David Knott, uh, published in Surgical Endoscopy last year, and they're a team from Imperial College London. And what they did was they used metal to run a virtual basic surgical skills course. Mm-hmm. And they ran exactly the same course face to face. And they compared the outcomes of the two groups. And they find no statistical difference in the competency of either group following the basic surgical skills training course. And um, even more interestingly, they, they kind of talk about the ability for this sort of technology to kind of scale up the number of training number of surgeons that we can train worldwide in a single day they taught 553 surgeons from 20 countries online um and uh and you can begin to see the impact of of that. is it perfect no it's definitely not like um uh, perfect um is it the only way we can do it oh definitely not is it a start and can it start to impart skills to people yes it's better than nothing right um uh, and um and even in some papers like uh, Matthias's paper it's saying actually there's no statistical difference after this course so it's I'm not saying that's you know a meta-analysis of all virtual teaching and training courses but it's a really interesting outcome that's been reported from a really significant um, population number now there's a really decent number of um, participants and, um, and and it's it's a way towards beginning to level the level the playing field Um so I think there, I think there are things that you can do online. I think you have to be creative. I think you have to think outside the box, um, but that's no bad thing. And um, it, everything is always a combination of face to face and and virtual. We're not saying that everything you know, you now never have to see a patient ever again in your life to to train to be a doctor. We're not saying that. But what we can what we can do is start to make knowledge for 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 um, uh, for healthcare more accessible. Maybe even start to teach some skills online. We've even got we've got. Um, uh, David O'Regan, who's a cardiac surgeon teaching surgical skills every Monday evening on metal. And he's doing it in a really interesting way, right? He's teaching people how to do it with the stuff that they have around their house, with bananas, mm-hmm. with um, pork belly, uh, with um, bacon, with lasagna, um, mm-hmm. and actually showing people like you don't need some really expensive model to do this. You have the stuff at home that gives you some really good um, uh, training opportunities and he's teaching people not only how to do surgical skills but how to do that on a budget at home so you don't need to go on a £7,000 course to learn how to operate um, so there's uh, so there's some really good stuff happening and I think we can be creative in that space to begin to uh, level the playing field and reduce the barriers to entry Absolutely Phil, a question about the doctors, the physicians that are training in kind of these low income countries what has their reception been like? You know, when they're attending talks and webinars and when you're speaking to them, what have they said to you? We're quite keen to hear more about their response to it all. Um, we have some uh, really awesome feedback, right? And and it's important to say that uh, this is not just about people from low-income countries attending events from high-income countries, right? We can never get to that position as a community. This has to go two ways. And one of our most exciting moments was to see the Surgical Skills Centre in Nairobi in the autumn of this year broadcast 
out to the rest of the world, right? That was like goosebumps moment. We're like, perfect. Like this is, this is exactly what this is about. This is not about some sort of imperialistic high income country teach low income country thing can never be about that. It has to be about a community and a healthy community is about sharing both ways. And this sort of technology enables that, right? So no longer do people have to rent out some big massive venue in Nairobi to now make this happen, um, which might be prohibitively expensive, right? Wonderful colleagues in Nairobi have stuff to teach us and we need to listen to. So, um, uh, so it goes two ways. And um, so, so it's not just about low income country, people attending high income country events. This goes two ways. And actually people beginning to learn from colleagues who are working in really challenging circumstances. Those colleagues have a lot to, to, to teach us and we need to listen. Um, no. um, but what you see, what we've seen is some really interesting feedback when we do do it the other way, right? So when, when we do make healthcare training more accessible to colleagues in lower middle income countries, it pays off dividends for them and for the organization involved. Um, it really improves accessibility. Um, one of the things that we did um, about six months ago was add a special ticket type to medal events so that if colleagues are running a paid for event, they can put their tickets on medal and they can charge people to attend their event. That's fine. Mm. Um, we know that not every event can be free, right? People have got bills to pay and they have to put food on the table. But what we added was a special ticket called fair medical education. Um, it was a fair medical education ticket. It's a little bit like fair trade, but for medical education, not coffee. And it allows an organization to add a free or significantly reduced cost ticket to their event. Our software will automatically check if those are colleagues in lower middle income countries and allow them to attend for free or low cost. And we were running a hybrid event for a wonderful organization called the Global Anesthetic Surgery Obstetrics Collaborative in Sheffield in October, November. And uh, they were beaming out from Sheffield around the world. And we had one comment in a two-day hybrid conference where a colleague who had joined from Uganda was asking a question, but he started with a comment. And he said, I just want to start by saying thank you for allowing me to be able to attend today. I could not have been able to do it if I hadn't been able to attend with a fair medical education ticket. Oh, wow. And there was a 30-second kind of pause in the audience, which then erupted and a round of applause. It was the only comment in a two-day conference that got a round of applause. And it wasn't because that person had the smartest question. It wasn't because that person was critiquing someone else's statistics. It wasn't because that person had more experience or was sharing their academic prowess. I believe it was because that, that community, our community, realized the impact they had made on a single person's life or that single person's career by increasing accessibility. And that's what really matters. I think collectively as a community, that's what we value. Um, and, um, and so that, that sort of feedback is powerful, right? Uh, it really is, um, um, it, it might make us feel nice. Yeah, that's cool. But much more importantly, it shows us as a community that this is really valued by, by colleagues around the world. And it does make an impact. The second thing we've noticed was there was a wonderful organization in, um, the spring who did something awesome. So we actually verify when people are joining metal, we verify people as healthcare professionals using their institutional ID or a copy of their um, healthcare ID or their email address. And we do that so that organizations can make their event really accessible without worrying about um, kind of non-healthcare professionals joining or mm. um, kind of professionalism in that event. So it keeps it really nice and safe and secure whilst being as open access as possible. And we get one or two people a week saying that they can't verify for whatever reason. We have a manual process in place to help those people. But in a single day in the spring, we saw 
like high tens into the hundreds of people saying that they couldn't verify for um, some reason to sue you heads up our support team reached out to a few of those people and said why can you not verify said well um, I don't have access to my institutional email address at the moment and I, I didn't think it was that important for me to get a letter from my dean before I fled the country so that I can access metal please and well and, and what we figured out was that these were medical students from Ukraine and a wonderful organization called the Crisis Rescue Foundation had just flipped their entire medical curriculum online in partnership with um, medical schools in Ukraine. And they'd recruited 250 doctors from the UK to teach Ukrainian medical students seven times a day, every single day for two months. Oh. And they were using metal to help them do it. And um, and the feedback that they got, not us, that, or that organization got, um, was from a professor in Nipro to say thank you for everything you're doing to help the people in this current situation. And that's that's our posture. We have to help wonderful organizations who are doing this amazing stuff. And they weren't doing it as, some, again, some sort of imperialistic kind of UK teach Ukraine thing. They were doing it because the people who are otherwise providing medical education in Ukraine were all trained healthcare professionals. So instead of them providing face-to-face -face medical education, free them up to provide face-to-face -face patient care in a, in a war-torn situation and bolster the medical resources of a country at a very specific time. And so when you see the the, Im, the impact, number, you know, we, we ask for qualitative and quantitative feedback and research in, in healthcare and in startups. And you see the qualitative feedback, the type of comment that that person makes at a conference, but you see the quantitative impact that you make in situations like Ukraine. And you can begin to see, hey, this this stuff really matters and it really does have, have an impact. Um, but it is important that we don't think of this as a one-way street. This is a community, it's a global community, and we've got to enable... Um, people who are in low-income countries to teach people in high-income countries as well as the other way around. No, definitely. And the work you're doing is not only incredible, but it's much needed. But flipping on its head, you know we need kind of millions more healthcare professionals, but we have a problem where we're seeing many healthcare professionals leave the profession itself. How do we tackle that issue? I know it's a bit controversial, um, but how do we retain these talented individuals, these talented professions? GEC Medal being able to help in those scenarios, in these circumstances. Do I think we're the sole saviour of, of uh, the healthcare workforce in the UK? Absolutely not. No, I think there's so many things that need to change, right? Um, you guys are, are trained NHS doctors in the UK. You understand the problems as well as I do. Um, and it's a multifaceted problem. Um, there are lots of things that need to change. Um, can we help? We're here we're ready to help we want to help um we think it's important to um retain doctors we're i guess that's important so we're not just targeted at medical students uh, we don't just target undergraduate education we are about ongoing education we're about ongoing teaching and training um and out of out of all of the problems there are so many problems facing the workforce in the uk at the moment one of them is that training costs a lot of money out of a doctor's pocket, they've got to pay for their own training, right? So anything that we can do to help that doctor not have to hemorrhage cash just to do the job that they love doing generally. Now, it's usually not the job that they, or the career that they hate. Um, uh, most of our colleagues want to be awesome doctors, right? They want to be, and they've sacrificed a lot to get there. Um, and um, and they want to learn Um but actually beginning to sacrifice your mortgage payments or 
your childcare or going out for dinner with your family just so you can pay for your own teaching and training. I think that plays a part in that multifaceted problem, especially when you look at, you know, the cost of surgical courses has gone up in the last 10 years, whilst the buying power of doctor's salaries has decreased by 10 to 20% compared to retail price index. You've got to square that circle, right? So, um, yeah, there's a very obvious solution to that problem. Um, um, but also whatever we can do, I, I can't suddenly, you know, pay, we, metal can't suddenly pay all of the NHS workers in the UK anymore. Um, but what we can do is we can work together yeah, to try to re- at least reduce the cost to that individual trainee, right? And, and that requires collaboration. It requires all of us as a healthcare community, all of the organizations saying that actually this is a bit of a problem here. We like, this is jarring healthcare professionals off, right? They have to pay towards their own training. They have to pay yeah. up to £72,000 of their own hard-earned cash towards it. Um, so we need to work together to try to reduce the burden on those individual trainees. And there's lots that can be done in that space. You know, we don't have to have people paying £1,300 on hotels and travel every year to get the education that they need. We have alternatives. We have good alternatives, in fact, available. And um, whilst it's not always the preferable choice to do something virtually it's still an option and um i love meeting people face to face i love having coffee with people i love going out for a pint with people right um but at the same time if i had a choice of seeing my wife in the evening and being able to spend time with my soon-to-come son versus traveling for two days for a mandatory course to stay in a cold (laughs) damp hotel room because i've chosen the cheapest one possible which would i choose i'd definitely choose the virtual option so there's there's um, there's there's courses for courses and and sometimes face to face is great sometimes virtual is great but we can certainly work there's room there there's space to reduce the cost burden on the individual healthcare professional and we hopefully will be able to help solve some of that problem but I'm not saying that's the only problem facing this population at the moment we've got so many other problems to tackle definitely and uh, first congratulations on being a new father me and Ams were you know we're new fathers ourselves so you know get ready for our life to be turned upside down. But, you know, we agree, We when we were medical students, we wanted to be kind of these budding surgeons attending all these different courses and conferences. However, sometimes it is difficult. You know, there's a particular conference that, you know, might be super expensive. You're going to have to get a hotel. You're going to have to get a train ticket. And you're kind of thinking, I wish there was a virtual way of doing it or something a bit more efficient. Um, and sometimes it might not even be about the, the money, right? It can be sometimes consultants that are struggling or, they may not be able to take a few days away from home or they may be caught up and it would just be amazing to have it something virtual so we definitely see that as as, as a big problem very well and it's, and sometimes live isn't even the perfect solution as well right and that's one thing we learned during covid was that um live is great right we saw lots of people who otherwise would never be able to attend events suddenly now be able to attend events beautiful thing to see um but it's not a magic bullet and if you live in a lower middle income country, actually being able to watch at a time and much more importantly, an internet connection that suits you is also really important. But it's not just, again, if you live in the lower middle income, if you just happen to live in Northern Ireland like me, then actually you're faced with some internet challenges as well sometimes. And that's really frustrating. And being able to watch on demand is really important, right? Um, and uh, that, that's, that's, that's something we've kind of leaned into as well is that if you're registering for an event why should you not be able to watch it on demand if that's available to you and 
um, if you want to go to weekly teaching in your hospital, but there's a cardiac arrest at 1 p.m. and you can't go, why should you not be able to watch it later on? And do you know what? Why should you not even be able to give feedback and claim a certificate for going to it as well, just because it's um, on demand? And um, so we've 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 uh, made that kind of one-click process for organizations as well. So yeah, you want to make it available on demand? Yeah, click done. Um, and uh, it just all of these things collectively snowball into greater accessibility. I think it's really important to have a guiding light. You know, what what is it like? What are you chasing after? And, um, and, and you know, it takes a little bit of time to refine that and actually make that crystal clear in mm. your head. But I think we have got to that point of crystal clarity. What is our mission? Our mission is to make great healthcare training more accessible, period. I think that's the perfect way to go about it, especially when there's so much noise in the world of health tech, med tech, healthcare. Um, and the, the last question I want to ask, you know, because I'm conscious of time, is what can the healthcare community expect to see next from Medal? You know, what exciting things do you have planned? Where are you going? Um, kind of keen to hear. Um, we've um, we've tried to, like, tie ourselves um, to kind of total accountability on that. And um, we actually, at medal.org, slash mission, we've actually tried to outline where we're going again in crystal clarity. And we've united as an entire team around this. Um, mm. And we're trying to hold ourselves to account. We need to train 18 million more healthcare professionals by 2030, but there are five times fewer training institutions in lower middle income countries. Many of those people could never afford to be able to travel to uh, teaching and training in higher income countries. Where we want to go we plan to make 95% of, uh, we plan to make accessible training available to, to 95% of World Bank lower middle income countries by uh, 20, uh, by the end of 2023. So we want to get that number from 172 to like 195. Mm-hmm. But also we would love to be able to see 75% at least of courses that can be hybridized or made virtual, yeah. made accessible to colleagues who can't, you can't travel for whatever reason. And by 2027, our goal is to teach and train 4 million healthcare professionals around the world. So we've tried to hold ourselves to account on kind of where we're going, why we're doing it. And, um, and, uh, and for us, that means working with more healthcare organizations. It means working with the association of dot, dot, dot in mm. many more specialties, um, yeah. not just here in the UK, but also in yeah. other countries, other high income countries as well. Um, so what, where are we going? We're going to, we plan to grow our community. We plan to um, um, uh, grow the number of courses that we make accessible. But one thing's uh, uh, for sure, we're always going to be enabling and empowering other organizations. We never want to make this all about us. We cannot ever do that. If we're going to really solve this problem, we have to be in a servant disposition, serve this community, serve these organizations. And if we can make life just a little bit easier for those organizations, maybe, maybe, maybe we'll be able to get to the point where they're willing to make their teaching and training accessible to even more people and to pull resources and to, to share great education. Um, to, to that posture of enablement and empowerment is kind of where we're going. Um, so yeah, grow, them, grow more healthcare organizations here um, uh, using metal, but not just using it for the sake of using it so that we're really serving their needs and um, as such, they're then serving the healthcare uh, community at large even more. Definitely. And I think that is incredible. And you are well on your way in achieving that. 
Um, I just want to take the time out to thank you for coming on here, sharing your story, sharing your journey, your mission. Um, it was a great pleasure hearing it. It's always nice to kind of hear the people behind it, the, the motivations, um, the reasons as to why they're doing it. So thank you for sharing that. Thanks, uh, Abdullah and Ams. It's been really great to to chat to you as well. And uh, um, I think uh, I think it, that goes two ways, you know. Um, yeah. Uh, re- really great to get to know you guys as well. And um, uh, also really excited to to see where your journey is heading to.